Uh, Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you we can meet around your word. We thank you that yesterday we were able to rejoice in remembering the birth of your Son, our Saviour. And we thank you that your word teaches us how to trust him and how to live as his people. Our Father, we do pray we would know the work of your word in our lives tonight, that they would strengthen us in our trusting and following Jesus, and that your word would equip us uh, to live as his followers, both individually and together. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. And gracious Father, we pray that we would all understand it, receive it with faith, and in your great mercy, not just hear it, uh, but be hearers who do, who put what we hear into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, 2021 uh, comes to an end and we're about to launch into 2022, uh, we have an opportunity to reflect on how we're going as a congregation. Uh, One of the words that might come into our minds as we think about uh, 2021 is thankful. You know, we do have in large measure lots to be thankful for. We've been preserved, we've experienced God's kindness throughout the year in the gifts that he's given us in each other. Uh, We've acknowledged that and last Sunday at Carol's we again had an experience, didn't we, of how God enriches our common life through giving his very gifts to his people, from welcoming to PA, from visual illusionists to musicians, cleaning to speaking the gospel. We've got a lot to be thankful for. But as we reflect on 2021, we could probably also use words like stressed or even wounded to describe the state of the congregation. Stressed by being unable to meet together for so long, wounded by a divided reopening, wounded because of the wounds we've received as individuals. That's right, you see, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that when one part of the body suffers... The whole body, the whole body of the Christian congregation suffers with it. And there has been suffering, hasn't there? Mental anguish for some, impaired grieving for others, sickness, isolation, disrupted schooling, difficulty with work, the stress of working from home for many. And so I think we come to the end of this year a little wounded and tearing Uh, the muscle in my calf last Friday, uh, last Friday week, has actually given me opportunity to reflect on the effects of a wound in one part of your body. Uh, I I was slowed down. My movement responses hampered. And I found that other parts of the body get stressed by unaccustomed use as you try and compensate for the part that's not working. You limp along for long enough and your hip starts to complain. And, of course, you have an increased sense of vulnerability when you're wounded and with it an increased caution. So even things that you've done all the time, like driving, you start to be hesitant about. And, of course, if you forget that you've wounded, you can cause yourself occasional bursts of pain. 
Wounded, I think, is a good word to describe us at the end of 2021. Slowed down, cautious, feeling stress in unusual places as we work harder. We've lost a lot of the momentum we had at the beginning of 2020, almost two years ago, wounded. So what can we do about it? How can we restore congregational health, rebuild that gospel momentum where people are becoming believers and being baptised, where we're confidently giving ourselves to service, growing in understanding of God's will and in lives rich in doing the good that brings honour to our God? Well, as I'm sure you know, rest is part of recovering from a wounding and I'm hoping that we all get some rest over this January. But after a wound, rest alone won't rebuild strength and function. You need more. You need a prescription, perhaps an exercise regime that will build you up and keep you strong. And in God's providence, that's what he gives us in tonight's passage, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. He gives us his prescription to restore and maintain our health as the body of Christ here, the exercise regime we are to follow. And it starts, like most exercise that's a little challenging, it starts with what's going on in our heads, with getting our thinking right. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. The end of all things. Now going through uh, 1 Peter in the morning, we've seen that Peter's already spoken of the awesome end of the age. He's spoken of the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, of the Lord Jesus being revealed in glory as this time as the last times. You see, the end of all things is when the Lord Jesus will be revealed in glory and every knee bow to him. When all will be gathered for judgment, when this age and all that is evil is consumed by fire and the new heaven and earth is revealed and the people of the Lord Jesus are raised to everlasting life. And the end of all things for Peter was something to be glad about, to long for, not something to be anxious about. It was a reason for living well, not for giving up and withdrawing, just looking after yourself like preppers. But what does he mean by near? Because let's face it, it is now more than 1,900 years since Peter wrote and the end hasn't arrived. Did Peter get it wrong? And if he was wrong about this, is he wrong about everything else? Did he get it wrong? Well, no. When Peter is talking about the end being near, he's not talking about a quantity of time, a closeness in years. He's talking about a timetable. We don't know whether Peter would be personally surprised to see us still meeting all these years later or not, but that would not affect the truth of what he said. You see, near means that Christ's return is the next thing in God's timetable. Now that Christ has come, died, risen, ascended and poured out his spirit, there's no other stop on that timetable before the end. You see, Peter 
in saying the end is near is communicating a theological judgment, not a calendrical calculation. A theological judgment based on who he knows Jesus to be and what he knows the Lord Jesus to have done. You see, like other first century Jews, Peter had learned from the Old Testament that God would bring what was called, what they called, the age to come. The new heaven and earth where God's people would dwell in God's presence at peace with God. And this would happen when God sent his Messiah, (coughs) his Christ, who would rescue God's people, defeat their enemies, restore Israel, establish an eternal reign. And the Christ would usher in the time when God would pour out his spirit on God's people, raise the dead and bring the final judgment. So Peter already had learned from the Old Testament about the age to come. And then the Lord Jesus came, preaching that the reign of God was near. And Peter had confessed him to be the Christ, God's promised king. The Lord Jesus had then taught Peter to see in his cross the defeat of all the enemies of God's people, sin, death, the devil. And Peter had seen Jesus risen from the dead and entering into his eternal reign at God's right hand, a reign confirmed by Jesus pouring out the Spirit on his people and then sending the gospel, the good news of his victory, that Jesus is Lord into all the world. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, his victory sure, his reign established, his people even now given the Spirit of God. And so all that remained is for the Lord Jesus now to be revealed from heaven in glory when the end would come. Beyond the triumph of the Christ, there's no other major event to happen in God's timetable. The end is near, the next thing. And Peter, taught by Jesus, knew that end could never be a matter of calculation. He'd heard the Lord Jesus, as you have heard the Lord Jesus this evening, say of his coming, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son except the Father alone. He'd heard Jesus tell him that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, would come like a thief in the night, come at an hour you do not expect. The end is near, certain, but it's timing unknown. And so God's people must always be ready for what they know is sure to happen, even if they don't know, can't know the exact time. That the end is near and that the way we're to think about our times is of these times as being the last days in God's timetable is the perspective of the New Testament and so of all believers. Consider Paul, Romans 13. Besides this, since you know the time, it's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. Or the James Verse 8, you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. That's the way we should think, that the end is near and we are now living in the last days. And that also tells us something about the character of our age, of our times. 
You see, this is an age that has rejected its king and its creator, where many still live in rebellion against God and his Christ, an age where Revelation tells us the devil knows his time is short. And so the rebellion of this age will show itself in the kind of things which if you've been reading uh, 1 Peter through, the kind of things that Peter and his hearers were already experiencing and God's people have experienced throughout the ages. Things like suffering for doing good, needing to defend our beliefs and especially our hope, believers being subjected to foolish criticism, being treated with suspicion by those whose lifestyle is different and, yes, sometimes having to face the fiery trial of direct persecution. You see, this is a world where believers continue to be and will always be resident aliens, sojourners, never fully at home and often under pressure in an alien culture for their following of Christ. And yes, in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus says this is an age where because of the increase in wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. Now, Peter is about to go on and tell us how we can live well as a community of God's people, be a healthy congregation in this age, live well in light of the nearness of the end. But before we look at that, let's just pause. Pause to ask, how would my life, my thinking and actions be different if I took the nearness of the end of all things seriously. Now, in this church, we're Bible believers, and so when we hear Peter say, the end of all things is near, we nod. You know, we agree, so sure. But actually, I suspect for many of us, it's an abstraction without any emotional force. What if we really believe? The time was very close when the Lord Jesus will be revealed in glory and we, you and I, will give account for our lives and our service. What if we really believe that nothing here, relationships, career, achievement, possessions, is ultimate? Really believe that the things we invest so much in labour for, that we measure our success or failure by, like money, or property, degrees, family, respect of others, what if we believed that these things would soon pass away and that only what we build on the rock, what we do in obedience to our Lord Jesus, will last? Would believing that the end is near make a difference to what you think of yourself, your goals, your achievements, your choices, to what you have given yourself to? If you thought you would be soon explaining to the Lord Jesus why you had used his time and money, the life and gifts he has given you in the way you are using them, if you thought the time for giving that explanation was near, would you be making different choices? The end of one year and the beginning of the next is a good time to ask yourself, those questions. Am I living knowing that the Lord is near? And God in his kindness tells us here how we should be living, 
as individuals and a congregation in the light of the nearness of the end. So you can actually measure your life, measure what you're doing against how God says you should live. The end of all things is near. Therefore, he says, we should have a certain mindset that shows itself in prayer. Be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Where to be alert? In the sense of the word translated alert is more right-minded, thinking rightly. It's actually the word used to describe the Gerasene demoniac when he's healed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. It says he's clothed and in his right mind. So this word actually describes someone who keeps their head, is reasonable, and sober-minded is someone who's clear-minded, not intoxicated or governed by their passions. And so Peter is calling us to think clearly in ways informed by the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done that reckons soberly with the nearness of the end because of who Jesus is and what he's done. He's telling us that this is not a time to let our thinking be clouded by thinking this world is ultimate or permanent or that there will be no accounting for how we live our lives. And the purpose or or result of this clear thinking is that we will give ourselves to prayer. Notice that thinking clearly about the nearness of the end doesn't mean we become preoccupied with useless calculation and speculation. And it doesn't mean we run around like Chicken Little crying, the sky is falling. And it doesn't mean we abandon work to prompt the coming of the new age. The priority for those thinking clearly about the end is prayer. Now, Peter doesn't say here what we should be praying for individually and as a congregation, but the rest of the New Testament gives lots of direction for that. For example, praying for the Lord's return, praying for boldness in speaking the gospel, praying for his people to be kept through trial, for growth in godliness, praying even for our enemies. But thinking clearly about the end means we pray. Pray because the living almighty God hears our prayers and can both sustain us through and bring to an end this present evil age. Now, over the lockdowns, some of us have actually been renewed in our habits of daily prayer, helped in part by the prayer and devotion emails. And what I want to say is don't give up that pattern of regular daily prayer. A return to some kind of normal shouldn't mean we become too busy to pray. The end is near, so now is no time to be half-hearted about prayer. That would mean we'd lost clarity of thought. And to live well in this time as a congregation is also to pray together. See, I know our prayer meeting disrupts our growth groups and I know it's been hard to build participation when we're all online. But we do hope to return to most of us being in the building and our collective prayer says we know what time it is and we're depending on God to do his work, to save his people and to bring his saviour. Because the end of all things is near, we pray and we commit ourselves to love. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now remember, as I've said, that the Lord has said that in the last days, love will grow cold. And we actually see in a good church in the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus that was faithful, doctrinally correct, that it had lost its first love. But in these times, these last days, love must be a priority for God's people. Above all, he says, before everything else, love constantly. It's sometimes translated earnestly, but he's not talking about emotional intensity. He's actually saying our love is to be determined and persevering. We are to be unwavering in our love of our brothers and sisters, not on again, off again, which is so discouraging but constant. Something our brothers and sisters can rely on when they live in a world that's suspicious of them, that's pressuring them to pull back from doing good and being faithful to Jesus. The love of their Christian family that will comfort and provide. Now, Peter highlights one particular reason why love for our brothers and sisters in the congregation must be constant, must be persevering. He says, for love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's quoting half of Proverbs 10.12. The full proverb reads, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offences. Now, let me give you an illustration of persevering love and the way it covers Sin, which is, in a sense, if you, if you wanted to get the full illustration, you'd have to listen to the children's talk from this morning. This is half of it, and hopefully it will help you get a grasp of the sense of love. Uh, when one of our children was an older teenager, there were differences between us about how tidy the room ought to be. And, and as you're probably guessing, we were the ones who thought it ought to be tidy, Right? Seeing the clothes on the floor, the bed not made, just the mess. It was a constant irritation that actually got in the way of talking about more important things. And we were mulling over this and a wise person asked us, parents, what really mattered? Having a tidy room or being able to keep having conversations about important things and choices being able to encourage our teenager to make good choices to mature. Well, we said being able to keep having those conversations, giving that encouragement. And do you know that what, what that wise person said then? And he was wise. He said, tidy the room once. Take a picture of the tidy room or maybe just get a picture of any tidy room, blow it up, put it on the door and then shut the door so that we actually only ever saw the tidy room and weren't continually irritated. Now, love is like that closed door with the picture on it. It covers over a multitude of mess and stops that mess being a constant cause of anger and disappointment And in doing that, it keeps you being able to talk about what you want to talk about, to be able to encourage the other person in what's good, to be able to keep living together. That's what love does. And that's why we need to keep loving each other because the lives of believers in Jesus are most often like that messy room. 
Now, you've probably been living in that room long enough not to notice it, but others do. The lives of believers have lots of causes of irritation and disappointment, but the Lord Jesus, who loves all his people, wants us to keep living together, to keep helping and encouraging each other while we all grow up in the faith. You see, to be the people he wants us to be, we've got to maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, let's let's again think about it. You know, we've had some farewells in the morning, just like we farewelled at Tra tonight. And when the Coates and Landris were farewelled, they spoke about, in a sense, the welcome they'd received. They're being treated with love. And, and it's encouraging to hear that. But we can't become complacent about love because the reality is we continue to be a group of sinners and in a group of sinners we will from time to time wrong each other, disappoint each other, misunderstand each other and sometimes treat each other with partiality. Now when that happens, and it is when, not if, We need to deal with it, yes, with rebuke and repentance and forgiveness. But what we don't do is give up on each other. We don't exclude or separate or withdraw. We persevere in real relationships and we can do that because of the love that covers a multitude of sins. You see, love doesn't keep on bringing up those failings. It covers them over. It removes them from our focus. And so love stops our hurt becoming solidified into relationship-breaking bitterness and anger or a harping criticism that will drive others away. We are to practice this love that covers over sin because we want our brothers and sisters good. We want them to persevere in the faith and we know that being in a congregation of believers, being in this congregation, helps them to do that. And driving them into the world by our lovelessness will harm them. We're to practice this love that covers over sin because we know our brothers and sisters are precious, loved by Jesus, those for whom he died. Oh, and we're to practice this love that covers over sin because we know we are loved, that the Lord Jesus has brought us into his family and he keeps us in his family because in his love he has given his blood shed on the cross to cover over all our offences, all our wrongdoing, to remove them from God's sight forever. We've been loved with this kind of love. And so if we're going to recover from the wounding of lockdown, We need this love. And brothers and sisters, it is a deliberate decision to practice it. It's a deliberate decision to hang in, to come back to loving others, not just in our own small circle, but all our brothers and sisters, not just those we have chosen, but those the Lord Jesus has chosen. Lockdown may have shrunken temporarily those we could meet with, but we mustn't let it shrink our hearts. So decide to re-engage with loving all Jesus' people and decide, make a deliberate decision to overlook the way others might have disappointed us in lockdown and that 
Very possible, you know, they might have lost touch with us, they might even, we think of, forgotten us. But we have to decide to love. We love because Jesus has loved us. And here we see he calls us, first of all, above all, to love those he loves perseveringly with the love that covers a multitude of sins. And one expression of that love that Peter again focuses on is the call to hospitality. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, what did, what did hospitality involve for first century believers? Well, one aspect of it, which we know from the early Christian writings of the late first and early second century, was putting up overnight travelling gospel preachers and the messengers of churches. You see, the inns at the time were notoriously bad unhealthy, often associated with theft, drunkenness and prostitution, and so Christians avoided them, relying instead as they travelled around on Christ's work, bringing Christ's gospel, serving the churches, they relied instead on the hospitality of fellow believers. And those believers would receive them just because they were believers, even though they didn't know who they were. And so hospitality in that case involved having strangers in your house at short notice, eating your food, sharing your facilities. And the other aspect of hospitality, particularly if a believer had means, was hosting the meeting of the local church. You see, there were no church buildings. And so if the congregation was to gather, it had to be in someone's place. And that gathering then as now was important for knowing other believers, giving mutual encouragement, learning the faith. And yet it was definitely intrusive to host the church and probably very inconvenient because the meeting was either before or after the working day. And yes, it drew on your resources and involved people you might not know coming to your place, people who perhaps were completely different in social class from you. Yet Peter calls on believers here to keep showing hospitality without complaining or grumbling. Now, we tend to think of complaining or grumbling as something not particularly important, but actually this is a serious warning. You see, that was the word used of the Israelites complaining about God's arrangement of things in the wilderness, in the Exodus wanderings, whether it was lack of meat or his plan to invade Canaan. You see, grumbling's serious because it's saying to God, you haven't got it right in the way you've organised life. Oh, you don't really care about me. Oh, what you expect of me, God's a little unrealistic and thoughtless, just too much. Grumbling flows from lack of faith and it brings God's judgment. Hospitality, having people in your home, Sharing what God has given you with your brothers and sisters is God's will. Whether that's hosting a growth group, taking the initiative to connect people over a meal, having, oh, even this is terrifying, having the youth group or parts of it over to your house or hosting Christianity Explored or making sure a fellow believer's got a roof over their heads when time is tough. Hospitality contributes to the perseverance of the congregation 
as a distinct community of believers marked out by love and can, like first century believers hosting gospel messengers, can contribute to the spread of the gospel. Now, of course, hospitality is work. It can put you out. You may not know all the people well. But we do it without grumbling because it is our good Lord's will. And we know in showing hospitality to our brothers and sisters, we're actually showing hospitality to the Lord Jesus. Remember Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats? Our Lord said to the sheep, those who would enter eternal life, I was a stranger, and hospitality in Greek is love of strangers. I was a stranger and you took me in. And the sheep said, when did we see you a stranger and take you in? And our Lord said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, think about that. I mean, we've just rejoiced in the Saviour coming into the world because he's come in love to give us eternal life. Wouldn't you be delighted to host the Lord Jesus, to show him hospitality? Well, he says you can now in doing what Peter says, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. How are we to be a healing and healthy community in the last days? Prayer, love, hospitality and service. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Here is the starting point. Each one of us has received a gift from God's grace and all, each one of us, is called to serve, to use the gift they've received to serve others. Now, Peter doesn't list these gifts of grace here. In fact, he just groups them into two categories, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Speaking and serving. And that's because, as we'll see, Peter is focused on our attitude to our gifts and the manner and goal of our service with them. But you can find lists of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. Uh, worth looking up, but as you look at them, remember that those lists are descriptive of the gifts at Corinth and Rome. They're not prescriptive, not prescriptive of the gifts all churches need to have. In fact, any ability in a believer, someone who confesses Jesus as Lord, any ability that can be used to build up God's people, would be reckoned as a gift of God's grace to his people. And we know those abilities extend well beyond those listed in the New Testament. We've seen that. We've experienced that in our own congregational life as we've been blessed by God's gracious gifts to us of, say, musicians, people with tech know-how, oh, ability in plumbing, air conditioning, computer skills relating to children, as well as Gifts we read about in the New Testament like gifts of mercy, administration, encouragement, teaching, evangelism. God has given us all something that can be used to build up his people. 
But how should we think about those gifts and how should we use them and to what end? Well, says Peter, uh, we have to think of ourselves as stewards of something entrusted to us by God. And remember, a steward is not the owner. A steward is someone who's been entrusted by the owner with some responsibility. And in English, a a steward is most often someone entrusted with the care of a property or household. And the steward has to care for it or operate it according to the owner's instructions, knowing that they're accountable to the owner for how they've used, looked after what belongs to the owner. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4 that the one thing that's looked for in a steward is faithfulness, doing what the owner has instructed her or him to do and doing it diligently, not being lazy in that task. The gifts we have are not our own. They've been entrusted to us by God to be used God's way. And God's word says they're to be used to serve others, not for self, for our own benefit or glory. By these gifts, God has actually made provision for the welfare and growth of his people. And so they're to be used for the welfare and growth of his people. So using your gift is not about your satisfaction or enjoyment, but about whether the Lord will be satisfied by your service of others with your gifts. And so you're not doing your brothers and sisters a favour by using your gifts for their benefit. You're actually just showing, praise God, that you have received favour, grace from God. And so you look to him, not those you serve for your reward. And that's why we persevere in service even when it's thankless or unnoticed. We are stewards of God's gifts, knowing that we'll actually give account to him on the last day for what he's entrusted to us. And Peter then talks about the manner in which we serve. If anyone speaks, and that's teachers, evangelists, but you could also think of growth group leaders, Sunday school and youth group leaders, parents teaching their children, If anyone speaks, they have to do it as one who speaks God's words. Now, that's not saying we speak as if we've got direct revelation from God. Peter is speaking about the manner, not the content. But he is saying that the way we speak and teach God's word has to be consistent with what it is, the word of the living God. And so we shouldn't be mixing in our own insights and speculations with it but keeping it distinct as it is. And we should speak with a suitable seriousness and zeal, as if it matters how people hear and respond, because it does matter how people hear and respond to God's word. And so we should never trivialise it or be offhand or unprepared. We should use our gift, knowing we are sharing the word of the living God. And then he speaks of those who serve. And again, that's very general, but it include, could include those who do acts of mercy or provide administration gifts in the New Testament, or those who serve with IT or PA, with cleaning or on the board. All of us should serve from the strength, it says here, God provides. But as with speaking, this is speaking about the manner of our service, not the source, which we already know is the gift of God's grace. 
We are to serve as one who serves with the strength God supplies. Now, what does that say of the manner of our service? Well, it means we go about our service with a cheerful wholeheartedness, knowing we serve the God who can, as he did with the bread and the fishes, take our small resources and make them sufficient to do what he's asked of us. This is asking us not to be anxious about our service, not resentful of the drain on our resources, and not defensive, fearful that what God calls us to with the gift he provides to us will overwhelm us. It doesn't mean we always say yes, because there are other things happening in our lives. And it doesn't mean we should think ourselves omnicompetent, fit for anything, because he's talking about serving with our gifts. But it does mean our service is to flow from trust in him, not trust in our own competency. And our manner of service should match our confidence in God. And when we serve God's people with God's gifts in the manner God commands, knowing that we're accountable to God, then God will be glorified through Christ Jesus in everything. And that's the goal of our service, that in whatever way our brothers and sisters are blessed by the use of the gifts God gives to serve them, their praise and thanks will be given to God and his reputation will be enhanced and people will grow in their knowledge and confidence in God's goodness and power. And that's what we want to see happen through our common life by the character of our Christian community, by its prayerfulness, love, hospitality, service of each other with what God has entrusted to us. We want to see our God glorified through Jesus Christ. And notice it can only be through Jesus Christ, for it's only through believing in Jesus that we have confidence in prayer and so can give ourselves to it. It's only through believing in Jesus that we can come to know his love, which is the source and the measure of our love for each other. It's only through believing in Jesus that we receive the spirit the Lord Jesus pours out and the gifts distributed by his spirit. And Peter finishes by reminding us of Jesus' greatness, that to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And that praise of Jesus <coughs> is consistent with the goal of our service. For to give glory to the Lord Jesus, whom the Father has sent into the world and exalted as the Saviour of the world, is to give glory to God. Thinking rightly about our times and embracing the life of those who think rightly, the life of prayer love, generous hospitality and service. This is the prescription we need, the exercise regime we need to restore and maintain our health after the wounding of the last two years. It's a life that brings glory to our God and it's the right life for those who know the end is near, for all those who know Jesus and what God has done and is doing in Jesus. It's a life that's motivated by knowing God's grace to us in Christ 
knowing his love, his generosity to us, which we've actually celebrated, rejoiced in, when we've celebrated the word becoming flesh. It's the right life. It's the life of those who know God's love in Christ. But the question is, will we take the prescription? Put it into practice gratefully and diligently. You see, when I was a doctor, I used to write prescriptions for people knowing that some would never fill them out. Some would take the medicine for a while and then stop before, before the prescribed course ran out. Some would take the tablets occasionally when they felt the need, even though they were prescribed for regular consumption. And some I knew actually would fill the script and put the pills in the cupboard for a rainy day or for a more deserving relative. Uh, you know, many of us are actually not good at taking or doing what is prescribed. But this prescription doesn't come from a fallible doctor and it's not there to meet a temporary need. This is the way God wants his people to live together in this age. So don't hear this and think, oh, that's a good idea, and start only to stop. And don't shelve it. And don't put it aside as a prescription to others. Let's show we are thinking clearly about our time and circumstances by practising this, practising prayer, practising the love that covers a multitude of sins, practising hospitality and using our gifts God's way to serve his people to God's glory. Let's put it into practice so that this time next year we will be praising God for returning and sustained health after our wounds of these two years of COVID, praising God for answers to diligent prayer, praising God because we've been embraced by love, because we've been blessed by hospitable brothers and sisters, praising God because we've served and been served with the gifts God has given to each one of us. I'm praying that that will be so, that this will be the regime we practice this year. But like every feature of our life together, it doesn't just depend upon me or your pastors, does it? It's actually up to each of us because that's who we are. It depends on each of us to hear and resolve because we trust our loving God to resolve to be doers of the word. So you've heard, brothers and sisters, let's make sure and let's encourage each other to do so that our great and generous God, who's loved us and sent his son into the world to die for us, to give us eternal life, is glorified through that son, through our Lord Jesus in our common life so that he is praised forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that you would work in us by your spirit to put to death selfishness and heedlessness and to bring us to life, to give us living hearts 
that receive your word, that know that the end is near, the time when we will meet our Lord Jesus is close. And know that your way of life in these last days is the best way so that we have living hearts that give ourselves to prayer, to love above all things, to hospitality and to serve one another with the gifts you have graciously given to us for the service of your people. We ask that we would be those who hear and do and that our lives would bring honour and glory and praise to you through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.